Welcome back to Curious Combinations, an Everything's Unoriginal podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Archive 81, Episodes 3 and 4. We open on a Manhattan community channel. It's Public Access Channel 56, and it's an 80s or 90s recording of a religious program titled Terror in the Isles that is talking about a movie called Satan's Carnival. Unlike The Circle, I don't yet see how this show ties into the larger narrative. It's mentioned later in this episode during Melody's segments, yes, but what is the larger point of it? More than that, what's the larger point of Wellspring in the previous episode? I assume these little asides are building up to something, and I'm going to be more than a little miffed if it turns out that they're not. As for the Melody flashbacks to her time as a Catholic orphan, they are kind of a mess. They further cement Melody's connection to the larger mystery, showing her drawing the tangled black mass that we will see her friend painting in the next episode. And this too is very reminiscent of a plot point in the Black Tape Season 1. But the scenes themselves, including their voiceover narration, are extremely overdramatic and they lack much believability. On to the next scene, which shows that the voiceover is in fact a pre-visor therapy session between Melody and Dr. Turner, and it's very obvious from the jump that Dr. Turner is an abysmal therapist, even before he lets his dog run in and assault a client. The level of unprofessionalism surrounding Dr. Turner is shocking even before you take into consideration that I think he was fucking at least one of his clients. As someone who's had a few therapists in the past, I would never settle for one like Dr. Turner. On to Dan. He's telling Mark about his latest doings at the compound. He took the bathroom apart to look for cameras, and he didn't find one, thank goodness. But he did manage to find wiring for the camera system. He hacked into it, and it's news to me that he has both the knowledge and the gadgetry necessary to do this, and he now has access to all of the compound's surveillance. That this all happened in the time between episodes, and that it's being conveyed to the audience as a kind of catch-up info dump, it's not great. I really just am consistently unimpressed with the storytelling here. Not the adaptational storytelling, but the very basic stuff. Why am I having to offer show don't tell as advice to a Netflix show? Seriously, why? So when Dan gets off the phone, he pulls up the surveillance program, and it's designed to be very Hollywood hacker in a very mockable way. But before the audience can get a good grasp of what Dan is actually planning to do here, we are no longer here. After doing no more than blinking, Dan finds himself in the Visser community room, talking to Melody back in 1994. He is nowhere near as disoriented and afraid as he should be, and Melody asks him out for a drink. A Fanta, admittedly, but it's a drink nonetheless. A knock on the door pulls Dan back to the bathroom, implying to the audience that Dan was either hallucinating, dreaming, or being pulled somewhere else, just like Jess later tells his father she used to experience. At the door, there's an old woman in a red jacket, one presumes that this is THE red jacket, who introduces herself as Bobby. Supposedly, she works for Mr. Davenport, and I've gotta be honest, I can't believe Dan didn't get Davenport on the phone immediately. I don't give a fuck that she is old and a woman. She is not supposed to be here, which means that she's a threat. And since later in the episode we see that she can get into the building without being let in, yeah, this place is increasingly unsafe every time I see it. Why Dan is still here boggles my mind. I understand curiosity. I consider curiosity to be one of my strengths. But this is just ridiculous. No amount of curiosity should prompt a person to put themselves in danger like this. Dan's behavior in this series has been, and continues to be, completely ridiculous. Thankfully, he at least knows how to hold his own against an old lady. He doesn't let this mysterious Bobby character banish him from the bathroom that he knows has no cameras, and she leaves him alone with the promise that if he needs anything, she's going to help him out. Just let her know. 
Back in 1994, Annabelle and Melody are in the Visser community room to poke around. They don't find anything interesting until Miss Wall comes in, and she gives Annabelle that same bizarre cheek rub that she previously gave to Melody. It's a very odd scene. I don't even remember Melody ever hearing that Miss Wall's name was Cassandra, but I guess I must have missed it, because Melody uses it while she reintroduces herself, and she is completely ignored in favor of Annabelle. Why? Who knows? Maybe she just senses another artsy sapphic and can't resist drawing Annabelle into the conspiracy? Though, if I'm being honest, I headcanon just about every woman we've seen so far as sapphic anyway. Annabelle and Cassandra are confirmed, Melody was sapphic in the original podcast, and I refuse to believe that Tamara isn't bi. Anyway. Melody asks if she saw Cassandra in the community room with Samuel and the others last night, and I cannot pretend I understand this decision. She knew to hide last night, but now she doesn't know enough to keep her mouth shut? Now she just gives herself away as a spy? Regardless, Cassandra either plays dumb or genuinely wasn't there. I think the former is more likely, but the latter is more interesting. Sure, she probably is just lying, but what if she's not? What if there's doppelganger stuff, or memory stuff, or something else going on here? At Jess's apartment, Melody arrives to find Jess in a funk. Apparently, Jess got in a fight with some of her bullying classmates. I just want it to be over, she says. I don't want to wait. It's an interesting thing to say, especially after all of the weird little tidbits that keep coming from this kid. Like, wait for what? I've got to say, far and away, the most interesting characters and plot points in this show so far are Jess, Samuel, Tamara, and the mystery revolving around them. As of this episode and the next, Cassandra is trying to muscle her way into that category, but she's not quite there yet. Melody, though. Melody isn't interesting to me yet, beyond being the vehicle through which to explore the Visser's weirdness. And Dan isn't really interesting to me at all, if I'm being perfectly honest. I like him much better than I like Melody, yes, but Melody is the one who's actually embroiled in an intriguing plotline. That may change as we continue to explore what's going on with Dan's family, Mark, and Davenport's company, but for now, I really think I would have preferred this story as an exploration of the Visser. I don't need the Dan layer of the story. It's just not very interesting yet, and now that the Visser storyline is moving into more interesting territory, every return to Dan feels like the narrative grinding to a boring halt once again. So, after this conversation with Jess, Melody gets a reasonable idea, Jess should go to a therapist, that she decides to manifest in a wildly unreasonable fashion. I should take Jess to a therapist. Even Annabelle knows that this is a horrible idea, and I honestly wish Melody had gotten proper payback for this. Taking someone else's kid to a therapist without even asking for permission is truly vile behavior, made even worse by the optics of watching a random white or maybe white-passing woman decide that she gets to take a little black girl to doctors because she just decided the actual parents aren't doing a good enough job. I truly wish Melody had gotten at least decked for this, or ideally charged with the fucking kidnapping that she has just committed. And don't even try to tell me that Jess lied to Melody about having gotten permission from her mom. Any adult with so much as a single brain cell would check with the mom before doing this. Kids fucking lie. This is not news. Check with the kid's mom in person, face to face, before you accidentally kidnap the child. Or, hey, maybe just don't be the kind of person with the audacity to enact a scheme like this in the first place. Especially when we find out that Melody is going to take Jess to Dr. Turner, the Dr. Turner who seems to have had some kind of an inappropriate relationship with Melody herself, the Dr. Turner who tracked Melody down through her friends like a grade A stalker, the Dr. Turner who we've been led to believe will later institutionalize Melody against her will. 
the Dr. Turner who gives Jess a therapy session, if you could even call it that, that lasts a grand total of maybe 60 seconds, then distracts her with a dog so that he can talk to Melody about her behind her back. Apparently, based on that very brief conversation, he has decided that he needs to do a full neurological workup on Jess, and, um, isn't he a psychologist? Now he's a neurologist? Did I miss something? Or is this Hollywood trying to simplify every brain and mind-related specialty into the same field? Either way, Turner is not going to get to do that workup because Jess's mom is here. And I really just need you to put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Ignore the apparent Christian extremism that's happening here for a moment. Just imagine being a normal woman who comes home to find her 14-year-old missing one day. You look for her, and you find out that she's been hanging out with a new friend while you're at work. A 35-year-old new friend that's taken your either epileptic or mentally ill child to a doctor without your knowledge or consent. Again, I don't really want to be advocating violence, but we can all agree that Melody should have gotten her teeth knocked out here, right? The audacity of this bitch is astounding. I could never imagine having that much self-important nerve. Like I said, the story that's revolving around Melody is vastly more interesting than the one revolving around Dan right now, but Dan is a much more interesting character simply by being a better person than this rude, nosy, self-righteous woman. But anyway, Dan finishes watching Melody's tape and shifts his attention back to the surveillance cameras. To his horror, Bobby is in the building. She's watching some of the Visser footage and claims to be checking power strips when she's confronted. Though I said I like Dan better than Melody, I do have to say that I think Dan is also a bit of a dumbass. I get that he doesn't want to call the police on Bobby or anything like that, given how easily that could turn into this enigmatic old white lady using the police against him a black man with a history of mental illness, but something has to be done about this woman. At the very least, I need Dan to react as if he's a bit more worried and cautious than he is. Maybe he simply doesn't think an old lady is a threat, but I need him to start grasping that mysterious people creeping around are always a threat, regardless of age, gender, or whatever the hell else. Bobby is an issue, if nothing else. Also, an issue is Melody Pendress, or the woman claiming to be her. Mark goes to interview her about the tapes, only to have Melody claim that the tapes were a pre-Blair Witch attempt at reigniting the found footage genre. She claims that she doesn't really remember anything that happened at the Visser before the fire, and that she doesn't recognize Tamara's purgatory song. At this point, Melody gives up and shows himself out, and so I'll ask you to keep this in mind for later. As far as we know, Mark and this fake Melody do not exchange another word. Mark just asks about the song, gets a lackluster response, says he's going to leave, and then presumably does, which does not remotely match up with what he claims happens later. So as Dan talks to Ratty, he reveals that Cleo ran away after the fire, prompting me to wonder if maybe there is more to Cleo than meets the eye. But before I get lost in speculation, Dan walks down the hall of the compound and ends up in the stairwell of the Visser. Melody is there playing the world's smallest violin for herself, as if she hasn't entirely created her own problems, and then Dan jolts awake. Back to the tapes. Melody goes to Jess's church service, and again, if I were Jess's mom, I'd have some fucking choice words. Melody is just loitering around the place, staring at Jess, and there's no getting around the fact that from Jess's mom's perspective, Melody is legit starting to look like a child predator. 
Speaking of child predators, Melody decides to interview Jess's priest, and if that joke offends you, you are listening to the wrong podcast. There's going to be more where that came from. Anyway, they chat about religion a little bit, but when the priest tries to ask Melody about whether or not she's noticed anything weird at the Visser, there is screaming outside. It's Jess's mom making an entire ruckus about Jess's unmedicated seizures as if this is somehow an unsolvable and shocking problem. Like, take your kid to a doctor, why don't you? Stop screaming in the hall for someone to help you and help your goddamn self. If your doctor cannot find anything wrong with Jess, go to another one. You live in New York. If your insurance doesn't cover a doctor that will actually help you, take a jaunt across the border to Canada to see if someone over there can tell you what the hell is wrong with your kid. Like, maybe take this more seriously than just hoping your priest can pray the epilepsy away. Jesus. But no, later that night, Melody goes to catch up with Jess and hears her screaming for help within the apartment. Rather than calling the police, like anyone with half a brain would do if they heard a little girl screaming for help, Annabelle just keeps filming while Melody tells Tamara to get maintenance to open the apartment door. Now, in case you're having trouble wrapping your mind around what I'm saying, let me explain this to you very carefully. Melody hears a little girl screaming for help. The victim is a black girl, and there's a religious element to the crime that is occurring, so there is ample opportunity for the cops to fuck this up in any number of awful ways. But at the end of the day, a little girl is screaming for help. Not 15 minutes, or an hour, or hours from now, when the maintenance man might hypothetically consent to open up someone's apartment without their consent. Just needs help now. So your options are either to break down the door and help yourself, or call 911 so the cops can do it. And here is a spoiler alert. This is not a typical assault. This is a religious ritual that is happening against the little girl's consent. And here's the thing. In America, no one gives a fuck about children's consent when it comes to anything except sex. Children are forced into all kinds of harmful and abusive religious nonsense, and the law isn't on the kid's side unless the abuse can be considered torture or results in death. What the priest is doing to Jess in this scene? Honestly, the cops would probably put a stop to it, but not make any arrests or anything. And if Melody bursts into the apartment instead of the police, well, at least the police would probably have cause to enter. Melody, though, Melody is just trespassing here. The law is not going to be on her side, and because she hasn't bothered to get on the phone with a 911 operator, there's no real outside corroboration that any crime was being committed. There's just Melody, who is essentially stalking this girl, breaking into her home. It is not great. Even when Melody gets into the apartment, she doesn't even actually put a stop to what's happening. No, Samuel is the one that does that, and the maintenance guy is the one who drags the priest out. I get that Samuel is almost certainly the bad guy in this story, and that the show will probably ultimately reveal that the priest really was doing the right thing. But you know what? Fuck that. I don't care what he was doing within the fiction. This was a depiction of a priest religiously abusing a child, and if the dude that just saved her from that is like a demon or a cult leader or an alien disguised as a person or some shit, who cares? All I care about is that someone saved the child. Truly, it is the first time I have actually found Samuel mildly attractive. Like, yes, please, save the kid and throw that priest out on his fucking ass that is a very good boy. But back to Dan. He heads to the chapel, which is not only open again, but fully renovated somehow, and I am not convinced for a moment that this is what it appears to be. Dan is losing his grip on reality, and this has to be another instance of that, right? There's no way that this show wants me to believe that Bobby or anyone else really renovated this chapel so completely, so quickly, right?
Cut to Dan in the woods. He's back on the phone with Mark again, but Mark is a little liar. He claims that Melody Pendris never showed up for his meeting with her, and the conversation briefly moves on. Dan reveals that he's got a scheme going. Now that he can get into the chapel, he can get into the tunnels. And although the tunnels are surveilled, he apparently knows how to replace the footage with the hours of empty hall that he has recorded, which means he will be able to explore to his heart's content, presuming that no one notices he's missing. And considering he can't even take a long shower without Bobby banging on his bathroom door, I find it rather hard to believe that no one would. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Dan's excursions into the tunnel turned out to be the same kind of hallucinations as his little chats with Melody seem to be. But that's a possibility for the future. For now, Mark decides to come clean on the lie he just dropped in Dan's lap, except that it sounds a lot like he's breaking out a second lie instead of the truth. According to him, the Melody that he met wasn't Melody. It was a woman who had gotten into a car accident and purchased Melody's identity, and that she had asked him not to tell anyone, which is why Mark lied. Except, we didn't see any of that. I guess maybe we're supposed to think it happened off screen, but what a bizarre writing choice, if so. What we did see doesn't match up with what Mark is saying here. We saw him just go to leave without any indication of fake Melody offering up any more information. Nothing about a car crash, nothing about an assumed identity, and definitely nothing about fake Melody asking him to keep her secret. Which means we have two options. Either Mark is lying to Dan again, or this conversation simply happened off screen, perhaps to keep the audience as much in the dark as Dan was. But if that's the motive on the part of the writers, it is terribly done. If they want us to linger in uncertainty over whether or not Mark can be trusted, why show us any of his conversation with fake Melody? It's just such a bizarre decision, and I am increasingly convinced that the writers here are just telling a very messy, sloppy story. Either way, though, Dan is disappointed. He heads back to a bit of tape he watched earlier. It's Melody and Annabelle in a convenience store, and both Dan and the audience have already seen how this whole thing plays out. Except this time, it's different. The tape skips, and Melody starts speaking directly to Dan. It's an expansion of what's already been happening. His dreams and her reality have increasingly been melding together, with shared experiences starting to pop up again and again on the tapes. And while I don't yet know the specifics of what that means for them, they clearly share some kind of a connection. What kind? Possibly something metaphysical, or possibly something ghostly. But when Melody wanders off screen in search of Annabelle, in walks Cassandra, looking very out of place indeed in this little corner store. In fact, I would go so far as to say that she's looking inhuman when she unblinkingly growls at Dan to stay out, and reaches through the screen to grab him by the throat. Cut to Dan waking up, gasping from the nightmare, and then we're on to the credits. And I wish I could say that I found this moment scary, as it was clearly intended to be. Unfortunately, though, the whole thing just struck me as deeply silly. It's very cheesy modern B-movie, and I remain unimpressed. But on to episode 4, which is perhaps the most interesting episode so far. Instead of another ad, we get another old TV program. This one is a bit of documentary about Eleanor and Cassandra Wall, two supposed sisters who were part of a spiritual movement called the Spirit Receivers, which, if I had to guess, I would say sounds like a cult of people who aspire to demon possession. Or perhaps, on the softer end of the scale, they do seances and channeling and nonsense like that. Either way, they're an artsy pair of supernaturalists, and though they're supposedly sisters, a look at some of the nude art that Eleanor made of Cassandra should clue a viewer into theirs not being a particularly sisterly relationship. Thankfully, they are just masquerading as sisters so as to avoid being outed as lesbians. They are not actually a pair of incestuous siblings. 
Our episode proper opens with Dan staring into the mirror, fighting flashbacks to his dream of Cassandra's attack. He pops some pills, and as per usual, there's no indication of what these pills actually are, because on TV, pills are just simple shorthand for vague mental health issues. And then he heads into the tunnels to try to get into those locked rooms. But he hasn't been able to get in. He wants Mark to help him hack through the keypads, but in the meantime, he is just hitting numbers in hopes of stumbling across the right combination. When he goes out to call Mark for help, though, he has another encounter with Melody. This one both in person, at the compound, and in broad daylight. Melody doesn't know how she got there. You tell me, she says. And then Bobby pulls Dan back to reality. It's the middle of the night, and Dan has been standing in the woods, staring into the darkness. That is a frightening premise, yes, but I've got to say that it's not really coming across very well on screen here. The disorientation isn't really succeeding in being immersive for the viewer. Perhaps it's that we're so often outside of Dan's point of view, but I have consistently not been with him in these moments of confusion, if you know what I mean. I kind of think what's happening here is that the show is not narrowed in on Dan properly. We keep seeing what Mark is doing when Dan's not present, and though the Melody segments are all ostensibly based upon her tapes, we keep seeing bits of her life that no one is filming. And that constant pulling back from Dan's point of view is creating a rather damning distance between him and the audience. Disorienting scenes like this really only work if the audience feels like they're experiencing the disorientation with the main character, and the fifth episode of Bly Manor is an excellent example of how to do this properly. But the audience here is so detached from Dan, so consistently distracted from him by Mark and by Melody, that I, at least, cannot forget that I am merely watching him. I am not experiencing this with him. At best, I am watching with a certain detachment as he loses his grip on reality. At worst, I am watching an actor struggle against mediocre writing. But back to the show. Dan heads back to the compound and gets a call from Virgil that reveals to him, via a very roundabout time-wasting story, he didn't get any work done on the restoration project that day. So off he goes to restore another Hi8 tape. Melody is once again in Jess's apartment, and I've really got to ask that Jess's mom set better boundaries here. Get this nosy bitch out of your home once and for all. But Melody has apparently not been banned from the premises, and so she goes poking through Jess's things, including a book on comets. Aren't comets supposed to bring about end times or something, she asks, and, um, no. Yes, comets are very often viewed as ill omens or messages from the gods in ancient mythologies, but they're not largely associated with apocalypses. Even Marshall Applewhite in Heaven's Gate didn't think that Hale-Bopp's approach was a sign of the apocalypse. They thought that the apocalypse was coming regardless, and they thought that Hale-Bopp was their salvation. They thought that the comet would save them from the apocalypse, not cause it. So what the hell is Melody talking about? Also, just for the record, comets aren't space rocks. They are partially rock, yes, but they're also dust and ice and frozen gases. Space rocks, as they're usually imagined, are actually asteroids, not comets. But we're clearly doing imaginary comet cults here, so what am I doing trying to apply logic to the nonsense? Anyway, Annabelle and Melody head up to interview Cassandra. Annabelle and Cassandra are getting along quite well, but Melody isn't even savvy enough to catch on to the barely concealed sapphic subtext of Cassandra's relationship with her so-called sister. Rather than noticing details like that, she again asks about the community room, and Cassandra refers to it as a cult right before Annabelle cuts her off. Cassandra explains to Annabelle that Eleanor had been part of an artistic cult that believed mysterious beings were speaking through them to manifest art. Amusingly, the closest 
closest thing I've ever heard to this idea in reality is the incident back in 1917 when a woman named Emily Grant Hutchings claimed that she and another medium had contacted Mark Twain's ghost so that he could write a new book from beyond the grave. According to the New York Times, the book was atrocious and their review ended with the quote, if this is the best that Mark Twain can do by reaching across the barrier, the army of admirers that his works have won for him will all hope that he will hereafter respect that boundary. The shade, my god. Regardless, Cassandra proposes that this is the cult Melody was curious about, and Melody's assertions otherwise are ignored. Instead, the conversation shifts focus to Cassandra's pendant. It's Coronite, a fictional stone from the equally fictional Karin Comet that Jess mentioned earlier. It's a very reflective rock showing Melody her reflection, which suddenly skips, just like a faulty tape. Cassandra then gives Annabelle a gift. It is a jar of black paint that Eleanor used to use, and she wants Annabelle to paint with it rather than let it waste away on a shelf for any longer. Given that this paint is the same black as the Karenite pendant, and that Annabelle later becomes convinced that someone or something is trapped inside of what she paints with it, one can only assume that this paint is too somehow derived from pieces of the Karenite comet which implies to me the possibility that the notion of something being inside the paintings might be very literal. If the paintings are made with paint derived from the comet, perhaps what Annabelle really means is that something is trapped inside the comet itself, and that this something is psychically reaching out to her, to Jess, and to the cult as a whole. Before they leave, though, Annabelle pressures Melody into asking about Julia Bennett. Cassandra lies very unconvincingly here. She says her memory isn't what it used to be, not that she does or does not remember a tenant named Julia Bennett, and she invites the girls to her dinner party tonight. After the girls leave, and an awkward conversation in which Annabelle has to explain to Melody that Cassandra and Eleanor were obviously not sisters who painted each other naked, Annabelle reveals that Eleanor drowned herself in the Hudson years ago. I'm not sure how she knows this, but there is no time to speculate. Samuel is at Melody's door, and he's asking after that key, though I'm not sure if he means the skeleton key he gave her a while ago, or the spare key to Jess's apartment that Tamara gave her to rescue Jess. Whichever key he means, Melody goes inside to get it, leaving Samuel alone with Annabelle. Tactless as ever, she outright asks about the satanic choir practice Melody saw him take part in, and Samuel either really doesn't know what she's talking about or else is a pretty convincing liar for a moment. As soon as Annabelle presses him, he stops playing dumb and starts terribly lying instead. He tries to say that what Melody saw was a rehearsal for Tamara's opera, and then he devolves into trying to explain his relationship with Tamara and why Melody might have seen him hooking up with her. It is really quite pathetic, and thankfully Melody puts a stop to the bullshit. He apologizes, and then he kind of runs away. Again, it's pathetic, and I've got to be honest, it leaves me in kind of a weird place on his character. I cannot decide what I think about this guy, and I am struggling to sort through the complexity of kind of awkward, reasonably attractive dude in glasses, plus just threatening enough to rescue little girls from evil priests, plus bookish and vaguely well-off and has a hot, obviously bi girlfriend, plus is clearly running a cult and up to some flavor of no good. Like, I guess I'm asking for future me, who has already found out what this dude's deal is, to throw me a life raft through time and help me figure out whether I think he's attractive or not. Because right now, I truly cannot tell. In any case, we've reached the end of the tape, and when Dan turns off the monitor, he sees Melody's reflection staring back at him. But he's entirely alone. Not in his dreams, though. In his dreams, he's with his sister, and there is that spooky song again. His sister is telling him about ghosts and about how their father apparently believes in them. They're lost, she says, and they don't know where to go. Flashes of Melody and flashes of a metronome, and I've got to wonder, not for the first time, how meaningful Melody's name will ultimately prove. And then Dan wakes, or so we think. 
He wanders down the hall to another bedroom and he finds Melody on the bed, reading handwritten notebooks like the one we saw back in the first episode. She thinks it's soap operas that someone was writing about, and she doesn't know why she's here. Nor does Dan know why a memento from his father is in the room. It's an old 16mm film that his father gave him, and that he smashed after his father's death and the subsequent revelation that his father wasn't quite the man he thought he was. But in what way was Turner not who his son thought he was? I am interested in finding out. Less interesting is Melody's memento from her mom. It's a ring that she wears around her neck. But the narrative doesn't linger over it. Instead, Dan admits to Melody who his father is. And Melody panics. Dr. Turner is not old enough to have a child Dan's age, and Dan is too old to be the son that Melody knows about. Also, Dr. Turner isn't dead, right? The light bursts, plunging them both into darkness with the implication that Melody's emotions are the cause. When Dan gets the lights back on, Melody is no longer there. It is very ghostly indeed. But rather than look for Melody, Dan marches over to the closet and its suspicious collection of handwritten notebooks. Most of them are regular writing, but one of them is pages and pages of five-digit numbers. They're possible keypad code combinations, and the final number is triumphantly circled. This, Dan thinks, will get him into the locked room in the tunnels. But is any of this actually happening? I'm not sure. Where does dream end and reality begin? It's hard for me at this point in the story to tell. As far as I can tell, Dan does indeed go down into the tunnels to start going through files. He very quickly finds a folder about his father, further hinting that perhaps this is not really happening because this is very convenient otherwise. And he discovers research implying that his father was looking into, quote, cross-dimensional travel. Funny that he was trying to travel through dimensions without any actual evidence of other dimensions, such as science fiction understands them, but okay. With pseudoscience-y shit on hand, who else does Dan call but Mark? Dan tells Mark all about what he found, from the bits about his dad's supposed research to the collection of fragments pulled from the Visser fire. We see bits of Cassandra's art collection, plus Melody's diary and her mother's ring, among other things, though it's the diary and the ring that are going to get Dan into trouble later in this episode. Dan leaves Mark with a new mission. Track down the very vaguely named T. Bellows, whose name was in the notebooks that Melody found. T. Bellows, perhaps, was a predecessor to Dan, someone who was previously at the compound and investigated just as Dan is doing it now. But when the phone call ends, it's not Dan who we follow, it's Mark. Because Mark is about to have a confrontation with Virgil on the set of the Mystery Signal podcast. Virgil makes his motivation very clear. He wants to pay Mark to spy on Dan, and though Mark turns him down for now, the lingering look that he gives Virgil's card implies that his resolve may not last for long. Back on the tapes, Annabelle is getting into that black paint. It's like a portal into Eleanor's soul, she says happily, and I find myself wondering if that's a hint or a misdirect. I don't think Eleanor is really what's trapped in the Karenite, though it's possible I'm wrong. I think instead that there's something inhuman trapped in there, if anything is trapped in there at all. Or perhaps Eleanor herself was inhuman, and this mystery is even more complex than I think. So then, Melody leaves for Cassandra's party, with Annabelle promising to arrive fashionably late. And when Melody gets to Cassandra's apartment, she finds Jess answering the door, wearing the Karenite amulet. Jess introduces Melody to a longtime tenant named Patricia, who is a little nutty and very pleased to be on camera. It seems like her only real hobby is recording soap operas because, and oh boy is this the scariest thing in the show so far, because it's the kind of thing I can imagine encountering in real life because the shows have a message for her. It's a very real-world delusion, and honestly, it might not even tie into the larger mystery. This woman might just be in the early stages of dementia or something. But whatever is up with her, whether it is delusion or a near slip of a secret, Patricia claims not to know any Julia Bennett. 
on to the next interview. This time it is Helen, a sculptor who made the masks for tomorrow's opera. Helen doesn't take kindly to Melody's questions and cuts the interview short, but the little look that Tamara and Helen share makes me quite certain that I am right about Tamara's sexuality. Forgive me while I take a moment to feel smug. Anyway, Samuel shows up with the guest of honor, Evie Crest. Viewers should recall that Dan knows her. Evie is the daughter of the creator of The Circle, and it was for her that Dan was trying to restore the footage. Seeing her here startles him, though there's hardly anything he can do about it but continue to watch. Jess bails from the party at this point, but Samuel sticks around, though he tells Melody that normally men aren't allowed to attend. I wonder if this is meant to be some kind of a hint that this cult might be inherently matriarchal and or inherently lesbian in some fashion, and if that turns out to be the case, I will have some thoughts on the subject, that's for sure. Especially given that Melody has been changed from a sapphic character to a seemingly straight woman during the adaptational process. So, Tamara asks about the circle, and Evie admits that all footage of the show, and apparently it's actually a show, not a movie like I'd thought, was lost after the accident that was actually her father's suicide. She's been trying to track down the footage, but she hasn't had any luck. Then, half laughing in spite of the very grave subject at hand, Cassandra asks if it's true that the circle was inspired by a real snuff film, and Evie admits that it is. Her father saw the snuff film of Ritual Sacrifice at a friend's bachelor party, and Cassandra gets very pushy asking for more information about this film, until Samuel catches her eye. I have no idea what to make of the look that these two exchange here, and I'm really dying to find out what it's about at this point, because while I am not largely invested in the larger mystery of what's happening to Dan or the mystery of what happened to Melody, I am increasingly interested in what's going on with the Visser, Jess, Samuel, and Tamara, and now Cassandra. Given the hints we've had regarding this mystery so far, that it might be as simple as a cult worshipping some kind of a demon or alien, I don't have particularly high hopes that the answers will prove to be especially satisfying, but I am much more intrigued by the thought of them than I am in the thought of the answers to Dan and Melody's parts of the plot. Really, I've got to say that at this point in the narrative, I wish the show had just focused in on the viscer. I don't need the Dan stuff, and I will put up with the Melody stuff if that's the only way to get to the viscer stuff. And maybe I'll eat my words later in the show, but right now, the viscer stuff is really the only stuff I find particularly thought-provoking and entertaining. I hope that changes. I hope I come to enjoy Dan's plot as much as, if not more, than the rest of this, but right now, that is where I'm at. In any case, Cassandra has another plan to get her answers. She has Evie and Beatrice here, which means she has both a medium and someone with a connection to the one person she knows has seen the snuff film that she is apparently searching for. Why is she searching for it, though? I have no idea. But there is no avoiding the fact that she is, especially given how much she applies pressure during the seance. She hardly lets Evie talk to her supposed father on her own terms. She just wants to know how to get her hands on that damn snuff film. It's really ridiculous. But before the seance starts, we follow Melody off for a hint of an aside. She's trying to break into that cabinet Cassandra's got, the one from the community room on the night of the weird warship. Samuel, being Samuel, is standing behind her like an increasingly hilarious Schrodinger's creep, and he unlocks the cabinet for her. The statue, though, is different this time. It's a self-portrait, Cassandra says, unoffended that they're prying through her shit, and I've got to note the possibility for amusement here. The implication that I think the audience is supposed to take away is that the statue was somehow swapped since we last saw this cabinet. But what if it's not been swapped? What if it's the same statue as before and it just looks different depending on the circumstances of the viewing? What if it really is a self-portrait of Eleanor, and what if the shifting of the statue from something vaguely alien to something obviously human is meant to tell us about Eleanor herself? What if this is our first concrete hint that Eleanor is not human at all? 
So now we're onto the Crest Seance. William isn't particularly helpful to either Evie or Cassandra, though he does supposedly make an appearance by possessing Beatrice. The questioning devolves into crying and repeating stay away in an increasingly demonic voice, which is still a right sight better than what happens during Melody's attempt to contact her mother. Why Cassandra pressures her into this, I have no idea, and Cassandra and Samuel keep sharing little looks the whole while. I've gotta say, I really don't ship it, but according to Beatrice, Julia Bennett is not dead. She cannot find her in the spirit realm or whatever, but she does connect with something else. Before we can see what happens, though, the footage freezes and we are back with Dan. Melody is standing behind him, and she and Dan have an increasingly distressed conversation about what's happening to the two of them. I'm supposed to ask you something, Melody says. I'm supposed to ask you for help. She doesn't know what that means, and neither does Dan, and neither do I, but she recognizes her diary and her mother's ring in Dan's possession, and she has no idea why both items are trashed. Dan tries to tell Melody that she's dead, that she died in the Visser fire, but Melody isn't having it, and given everything else that's going on, I don't know that she's wrong. With Dr. Turner having been working on dimensional nonsense and an entire cult devoted to a comet, I think there's a lot more going on here than a simple ghost story. Beatrice, though... I'm sure she wishes this was just a ghost story, because instead of connecting with a ghost, she connects instead with the conversation we just witnessed, with all of Melody and Dan's conversations, in fact. She starts repeating them back to Melody, which horrifies Melody and thrills Dan. He's convinced that this somehow means he can change things, that he can save Melody, and I have no idea if I'm supposed to believe him or not. I'm also not sure why he thinks that this is the case. Just because his conversations appear to potentially be real in some capacity, why does that make him think that he can change the past? Why does he think that this means he'll be able to save Melody's life? In any case, Cassandra tries to stop Beatrice, but that doesn't work. Beatrice trips over Dan's final words, and trying to channel Melody's own ghostly distress makes Beatrice completely lose it. She starts screaming and raking her hands over her own face, and though it took too long, bless Tamara for being the one to intervene here so that Beatrice doesn't rip her entire face off. As it is, the degree of damage is horrifying. The few long seconds of delay between Beatrice starting to hurt herself and Tamara and Samuel stopping her means that Beatrice will no doubt bear horrific scars for the rest of her life, and might not not even get to keep her eyes. But we get to see Beatrice one last time, and I've got to say that this scene in particular is ridiculous. Beatrice is already all bandaged up, strapped onto a gurney, and is being loaded into an ambulance by paramedics with a huge gathered crowd, and Melody comes running out of the building demanding answers. The logistics of this scene make zero sense. Getting Beatrice into this condition must have taken a while, not to mention getting her down the stairs, the elevators are out, and ready for transport. So, why is Melody suddenly in a rush? What was she doing before this dramatic run and shout? Sitting around and sipping wine and waiting for the most television cliche moment to start screaming? It's this weird moment of brainless drama that makes no in-universe sense, and I really hate that they did it this way. It is very indicative, I think, of the show's writing problems. For the very end of the episode, though, we are back to Melody's apartment. Annabelle never made it to the party. She's been smearing black paint over every available bit of paper, and she insists to Melody that, quote, someone's in there. And the tapes imply that she's right. Our final shot before the credits is of an alien face growling in the grainy VHS footage. I wish it was a little bit less silly than it is. So, 
where I'm at with this show right now is that I am halfway through the first season and out of curiosity, I did end up going to double check on how faithful an adaptation this is. Because, like I said, I don't know for sure how much of Archive 81, the podcast, I listened to. I know I listened to a little bit of it. I recognize the name Visser, I recognize the name Stan and Mark, and I recognize the name Melody Pendress. I definitely do. I've recognized that there's a child that was born in the building, I think. Unless that's from a different show that I'm thinking of. Oh, and I definitely remember Ratty and the premise of restoring tapes. I remember that, but everything else that's going on right now, I don't really remember. I don't remember anything to do with an amulet. I don't remember anything to do with Rockland. I don't remember Annabelle or Cassandra. I don't remember anything to do with a therapist or a house fire or an opera. And from my very brief and careful-to-avoid-spoilers research, that's because most of what is happening in this show is not actually in the podcast. This seems to be an in-name-only adaptation. It seems like they genuinely just took names and the very basic premise of restoring footage, and they used that to make their own show, which is not a thing I tend to enjoy. It seems like the story that they're actually making is kind of stupid, so I'm in this weird space of, like, I definitely am going to continue and finish watching this first season, but I have been consistently underwhelmed so far. That may change as we get into the back half of the show, but right now I feel like I was pitched something that I didn't actually receive. I was pitched a show about Archive 81, and that's not really what this is. Instead, it's a show titled Archive 81 with nothing really to do with the original podcast, which is an odd choice. And more to that, I was told that this was a very good show by virtue of of it being pretty popular, considering that it is hitting those Netflix, you know, top 10 lists, but it's kind of bad so far. The writing is all over the place, and I don't know. I am consistently, like, pleasantly surprised of late by the quality of some of the things that have been getting very popular on Netflix, but this is not an instance of that. This is not Midnight Mass. This is not Hill House. This isn't Squid Game. This is just a mess. I mean, so far, at least, this is a mess. And there may be a good story buried inside it, but so far, I'm not really seeing that. I'm seeing inept writing. I'm seeing a certain disrespect, maybe a disregard even for the source material. And I'm seeing religious themes that I suspect are going to be badly handled in the long run. It seems like there is a cult with a bunch of lesbians in it, and a main character who was supposed to be a lesbian who has gotten instead turned into a straight girl. So no, I'm not expecting to have good things to say about this show once I reach the end, or at least not an overall sense of, you know, enjoyment toward the show. I think halfway through is probably a fair place to say that I am pessimistic at this point. Very much pessimistic, in fact, and I don't mean that in a way that should shade anyone who did enjoy the show. Everyone likes different things. Everyone has different standards. Everyone interprets and analyzes a text differently. But for me, so far, there are good things here, but they are being mishandled, and there's not enough good to make up for what seems like a large mess. Like I said, I am hoping that that turns around. I'm hoping that in two days' time, I can turn around and tell you that I judged the show too quickly. But right now, yes, I am judging it. At the halfway point, I think this is a good place to start saying that I think I have an idea of what this show is. In any case, though, I will be back very soon with my coverage of episode 5 and 6 of Archive 81, season 1, and I hope you will come back to join me for that. I hope that you at least have been enjoying my coverage so far. If you would like to vote on what it is that I'm going to be covering after Archive 81, you are probably too late to do that by the time you're hearing this, but 
polls will always be occasionally going up on my Patreon. That is available for $1 patrons, and there are going to be up to four per month, maybe just one a month, sometimes possibly even none per month, but that all depends on what is getting released versus what you guys want me to cover. If there's something that I particularly want to cover, you guys are going on the back burner. I'm sorry, when Stranger Things 4 comes out, I'm watching that. I'm dropping everything and I'm watching it. But if you are interested in my reaction videos in addition to the podcast coverage, that is available to $5 patrons. Edited versions will eventually someday go up on YouTube, but to be honest, I truly hate video editing, and so that is a very slow process indeed. Other than that, though, if you are enjoying this podcast, I would appreciate if you could leave a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice. Alternately, you could tell a friend about the show or talk about the show on social media. All of that would be very much appreciated. Certainly not demanded, but very appreciated. And other than that, if you are enjoying the show, I hope you continue to do so. And I am going to be back very soon with my next episode of coverage of Archive 81. As always, thank you for listening.